It was ordained from on high that he would perish by my hand this day. And it has come to pass. The Man-Thing is dead, slain by heaven's finest warrior. Hello everyone and welcome to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. I'm Paul Matthew Carr, your occasional host on this podcast, which is apparently seasonal now. (laughs) Nonetheless, I am still your guide through the weird, the wacky, and the often wonderful of a 70s swamp-based monster comic. On today's program, I'll be talking about Man-Thing number four, The Making of a Madman. This will be finishing up the Fool Killer arc started in the last episode, and although I said I wouldn't do it again, I really can't help myself. I'll pay the fool! (laughs) Okay, uh, I won't play that again, I promise. Uh, But maybe I will, because I... As we all know, I can't be trusted. Also on the program, I'll be talking a little bit about some not-so-controversial subjects, religion and politics. So I look forward to your comments. Release the trolls. (laughs) And before I begin, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, how Steve Gerber created characters. Or at least my feelings on how he created characters. It's just something I've been thinking about and something I've noticed as I've been rereading through not only Man-Thing, but also The Defenders and Howard the Duck, Omega the Unknown, and, and some of his other titles. All of those titles, by the way, I have many, many thoughts on, and I'd love to do shows on each one of them. But as we all know, I need to focus on one thing at a time or I lose track of what I'm doing. What was I talking about? Oh, that's right. Gerber's character creation. The thing I've noticed is that, it seems to me, Gerber was not really interested in creating characters that stand the test of time. He did, but I don't believe that was his intent or his goal. What I mean by this is he didn't seem interested in adding to canon, especially with his villains. I mean, I mean, he wasn't attempting to create the next Green Goblin or Kingpin, but rather he was creating characters that fulfilled a specific niche in the particular story he was telling. And typically that took the form of a joke or or a pun, and that in turn was meant to satirize a particular idea or movement or institution that was prevalent at the time. Fool Killer in these two issues is a prime example of what I mean by this. I don't think, I mean, I could be wrong, but I really don't believe that Fool Killer was created to be a recurring villain in the Marvel Universe. He wasn't meant to be Man-Thing's foil for an extended period of time, but rather Gerber had some had something he needed to say about an attitude that was going on at the time. And I'll get into the specifics of that a little later as I discuss the issue itself, but he created an over-the-top personification of his opinions. Opinions that he expressed often without subtlety, but not without nuance. Another example of what I mean by this is Elf with a Gun. Elf with a Gun was an elf with a gun. (laughs) He was a character that appeared in Defenders, uh, and he randomly killed people for no apparent reason, and then died meaninglessly. Now, at first glance, this is silly, just a throwaway gag in the comic. He's not really even a threat to the Defenders, but if you think about it, what he is, a little man with no real power who feels that he gains strength by carrying a gun, that's a commentary and not a subtle one, but a powerful metaphor. And he did this sort of thing all the time. And maybe one of my favorite creations of Gerber is the Howard the Duck villain Pro Rata. He's an evil magician accountant, a financial wizard, who lives in a tower made of credit cards, literally a pile of debt. And he uses his cosmic calculator to create illusions of power. I don't think I need to go into great detail to describe what he's trying to get at here, and nor should I have to tell you, it's awesome. 
But this gives you an idea of Gerber's approach to character creation. They were expressions of ideas, representations of concepts rather than fleshed out individuals. Characters, really. And his stories tended to be analogs, analogies, one-off morality plays rather than the ongoing soap opera tales that were being told at the time in comics. And don't get me wrong, that aspect is still there for sure, but my feeling is that his intent was different than his contemporaries. He was more concerned with making a point than creating a legacy. And that's why I think Steve Gerber is not just one of the best comic book writers, but also one of the best satirists of the time. I'd put him right up there with Douglas Adams and Monty Python. And if you know me, that is incredibly high praise. The irony, of course, is that many of his creations would come back. And different writers would give, for instance, a cosmic backstory to Elf with a Gun. And Fool Killer would be revised many times over the years, albeit in vastly different ways. Now, I don't think this takes away from Gerber's intent at all, but it does illustrate the fact that there's nothing in comics that can't be recycled. I mean, they still keep bringing back the Clone Saga. Why, for the love of God, why? (laughs) But I digress. My overall point is that Steve Gerber's approach to comic book writing and character creation was unique ahead of his time. You see some of the techniques he employed used today by writers like Grant Morrison and, and, and Warren Ellis. But for his time, his satirical style was difficult and could be written off as just, you know, wacky or psychedelic or just plain weird, but there's definitely a method to his madness. And as insane as it all may seem, there's a real strong commentary on social issues of the day going on, commentary that still resonates 40 plus years later. Okay, that was just some quick thoughts. Uh, Love to hear what you think about that. But right now I'm going to take a quick break, plug another show I like, and when I come back, we're going to talk about Fool's I'm Peter Fool! Adventures into the unknown. Tales from the crypt. Skeleton hand. The haunt of fear. The vault of horror. Adventures into terror. Strange tales. Uncanny tales. Journey into mystery. The house of secrets. The House of Mystery. The Phantom Stranger. Doctor Thirteen. Doorway to Nightmare. The Witching Hour. Strange Suspense Stories. Worlds of Fear. Chamber of Chills. Terror Tales. The Beyond. Tomb of Terror. Weird War Tales. The Twilight Zone. Creepy. Dark Shadows. Vampirella. The Haunted Tank. The Heap. Eerie. Swamp Thing. Weird Mysteries. Tomb of Dracula. Tales of the Unexpected. Werewolf by Night. The Demon. Man Thing. Monster of Frankenstein. Brother Voodoo. The Son of Satan. Night Force. The Living Mummy. The Sandman. Tomb of Darkness. Evil Ernie. Saga of the Swamp Thing. Flinch. Hellblazer. Thirty Days of Night. Preacher. The Walking Dead. What do these titles have in common? All of them. From Adventures into the Unknown to Tales from the Crypt, to the House of Mystery, 
to the tomb of Dracula may be found in the long box of darkness. I'm your host, Herman Lowe. Join me every Monday night for a journey into comic book horror as we delve into the secrets of the long box of darkness. So listen if you dare, puny mortals, to the long box of darkness, available on Stitcher, iTunes, and Podbean. And check out the blog at www.longboxofdarkness.com. Good night and pleasant screams. <laughs> I am now going to spend a few minutes talking about religion and politics, specifically the religious right. So, you know, that's not too polarizing or anything. In fact, I can already hear someone typing out an angry comment as I speak. But this is not going to be, or at least I don't intend for it to be, a polemic against the religious right or conservatism or, you know, belief in general. But the story being told today is directly related to this. It is a satire of a movement and of a feeling beginning to take shape in the United States at the time. And Steve Gerber was voicing his opinion on how he felt about the perceived attitudes surrounding this movement. And in typical fashion, not in a subtle way, but an interesting one and a unique one. But let me get into what I mean by this. It's often been remarked that America is a religious country. And it's true. What that phrase means and how religious a country it is usually depends on which faith you're coming at it from. But up until very recently, being religious in this country didn't also mean being political. Politics and religion, for the majority of the history of the United States, did not mix. And that was a source of pride, both for the faithful and the political. Now you may quibble with that. Politicians in this country have always, from the founders on, somehow invoked God or blessing or faith in some sense when speaking or writing, and especially campaigning. But there's a real distinction here. In the past, when politicians spoke in this way, it was always in the sense of providing personal strength or influencing morals or ethical decisions, not as a direct influence on legislation or law or governance, but as personal character building. That may seem a subtle distinction, but it's a major one. An example that popped into my head as I was preparing this was John F. Kennedy. When he was running for president in 1960, one of the arguments against him was the fact that he was a Catholic. It was thought that if he were to become president of the United States, the U.S. would be controlled from Rome and that the Pope would be calling the shots. And people lost their minds over this. But Kennedy gave a very impassioned speech about religious liberty and the separation of church and state. In this speech, he stated quite unequivocally that his faith gave him strength, but it did not influence how he would govern. Similarly, at the same time, Martin Luther King, who was of course a preacher and obviously used religious imagery and terms in his speeches, did not directly endorse candidates on either side. In fact, he specifically stated more than once that he wished to be nonpartisan in order that he could be critical of both sides when he needed to be. In other words, separation of church and state was a big deal. 
Then a guy named Barry Goldwater came along. He was the Republican nominee for president in 1964, and he was of the belief that America was in moral decay. It was an ethical cesspool headed straight to hell in a crime-ridden interracial basket, and he openly courted conservative religious leaders to back him. Goldwater got crushed in that election. There were multiple reasons for that, but one of which is the separation of church and state was a big deal. But the idea was there. And after Goldwater's defeat, conservative religious leaders began to be more open about who they thought should be running and about what policies they should be enacting. And as it turns out, they had influence. So by the time we get to Richard Nixon running for re-election, right around the time this comic is being written, he has been openly endorsing what he sees as the correct faith. He was hanging out with Billy Graham and asking him for advice on policy and war. Uh, Graham, by the way, as an aside, advocated for the bombing of dikes in Vietnam, which would kill hundreds, if not thousands, of civilians. You know, like Jesus would do. Anyway, at this point, Nixon began advocating for what he called the silent majority. In other words, very conservative, very religious, specifically evangelical people, to rise up and help him combat the growing dissenters. You see, at the time, there were all these dirty hippies wanting change and rights and peace and stuff. Damn ungrateful bastards. Why can't they just be happy for God and country? <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I'm slipping into polemic here. I'll pull it back. Now, you have to understand that Nixon being best buds with Billy Graham was unheard of. I mean, for Nixon to attend and speak at a Billy Graham crusade was crazy. The president simply did not endorse a particular faith. That's, like I said, unheard of. But that's what he seemed to be doing. Now, as it turns out, Billy Graham backed the wrong horse there, but again, the groundwork was laid. And in 1976, an openly evangelical, devout, born-again candidate was elected president. Yeah, Jimmy Carter was seen as crazy religious. Newsweek at the time declared that it was the year of the evangelical, and that faith was now part of the political landscape. And by the end of the decade, you have Jerry Falwell turning the silent majority into the moral majority. And the intertwining of religion and politics became something very hard to separate. The separation of church and state would become thinner, blurry, harder to define. Something that continues to affect our government to this very day. So that's the atmosphere that Steve Gerber is writing this issue in in 1974. He sees the clash between the hippies and the moral crusaders and he does not like what he sees. So he crafts a story that is, well, only one that Steve Gerber could write. Man-Thing number four, cover dated April 1974. Written by Steve Gerber, art by Val Mayerick, inks by Jack Abel, color by Linda Lessman, letters by David Hunt, edited by Roy Thomas. Deep in the Swamp. Fool Killer stands over the apparent lifeless body of Man-Thing, while the survivors of a helicopter crash look on in horror. Fool Killer feels a little bad about the helicopter crash, he being the one that caused it and all, but his guilt is soon alleviated when the pilot attacks him, proving himself a fool, and thus Fool Killer feels perfectly justified in burning him to a pile of ashes. He then speeds off in his red convertible, nearly running Richard and Ruth off the road, before parking in the back of a semi-truck, a la Knight Rider style. The truck is really a secret lab, a base of operations for Fool Killer to plan his killings. 
In the lab is a metal and glass container where floats a dead body preserved in formaldehyde. This is Reverend Mike, and Fool Killer feels the need to tell him his backstory. Fool Killer is in reality Ross Everbest, who was born the day his father died in World War II. His mother was killed later in Korea on his ninth birthday. So Ross turned his bedroom into a memorial to them and to the military, and spent his time studying military tactics till he became an expert. But alas, he was born a cripple and was unable to follow in their footsteps. Until one day, his grandmother took him to a tent revival, where Reverend Mike laid hands upon him and hailed his crippled legs. After this miracle, Ross believed he found his calling and became a preacher as well. And he was so good at it that he was dubbed the new Messiah. But Ross was troubled, for the world was filled with crime and drugs and protesters. And they were fools. So he fashioned for himself a skin-tight outfit with the intention of becoming an agent against fools. Returning home, filled with terrible purpose, he found Reverend Mike getting it on with a lady. Horrified by finding out that Mike was really a human being, Ross killed him and preserved his body in a vat of formaldehyde. You know, like you do. He then took all the church's money and bought a computer and a ray gun of purity and set off on his mission, killing fools. Meanwhile, back at the swamp, Man-Thing's not dead, he's just resting. The purity ray merely dried him out, and all he needed was some moisture to revive him. Feeling better, Man-Thing then tries to help the helicopter survivors by flagging down a jeep. And by flagging down, I mean standing in front of it and letting it smash into him. This jeep just happens to belong to F.A. Schist and Wickham, who reluctantly take the survivors back into town. But alas, as they drive, they are pursued by Fool Killer in his truck, who speeds up and crashes into them, scattering their bodies across the road. Dang, that's dark. As this is happening, Richard and Ruth are having a burger at a roadside diner. And a bit later, Fool Killer arrives, driving his truck through the front window and kidnaps Richard. He then drives back to the Jeep crash where everybody lived. Huh, didn't see that coming. Then he karate chops Schist and takes he and Richard into the truck to kill them. But suddenly, Man-Thing is there, to Fool Killer's surprise. Man-Thing is seemingly back from the dead, making him the real messiah. Bit of a leap in logic, true, but it scares Fool Killer enough that Man-Thing is able to burn him with his touch. Confused and in pain, Fool Killer makes one last attempt to kill Man-Thing with his purity ray. But Richard jumps him from behind, causing him to fire wildly into Reverend Mike's vat, shattering it and flinging glass in all directions. One shard embeds itself into Fool Killer's chest, lodging it deep into his heart, and he falls dead with the lifeless corpse of Reverend Mike sprawled on top of him. So, dang, yeah, this is really dark. I mean, it seems kind of whimsical and strange on, on, the, on the surface, but it's got some dark elements there. And the message here is not only satirical, but I think rather cynical as well. Gerber's opinions on the matter of religious fundamentalism are pretty clear, and he's not a fan. But before I get into that, I, uh, I want to mention a couple of things about the comic itself. Or rather, a couple of moments I just found really, you know, wonderful. First is the way Man-Thing commandeers the Jeep. It's just, it's just wonderful. He stands in front of it, and F.A. Schist orders his driver to speed up, 
But instead of crashing, the Jeep sort of melts into Man-Thing, you know, just sort of schlumps into him. And it's a wonderful image of Man-Thing just standing there with the vehicle kind of embedded inside of him. Uh, but the best part of this scene is when Schiss begins to tell the survivors that he, he can't take them with him. They'll just weigh him down. They'll just hold him back. He, he needs speed. There's no way he can take them. And then Man-Thing holds one finger up in front of his face. And Schist immediately changes his mind. It's, it's a great comedic moment. Uh, it reminded me a lot of, of the old Ab- Abbott and Costello movies, or maybe the, maybe in the Three Stooges. You know, basically it's, no way I'm doing that. There's absolutely no way. Oh, of course I will do that. It's very vaudevillian in its execution. And those survivors, by the way, someone buy them a lottery ticket. I mean, they survive a helicopter crash, and then they almost immediately survive a collision with a Mack truck. And they were flung from the Jeep. I mean, this is 1974. There's no seatbelts, people. Very, very lucky people. Good for them. <laughs> and the, the backstory of Fool Killer, the life of Ross Everbest, again, Gerber with the spot-on names. Uh, but Gerber, I mean, he really lays this on, on thick. Uh, he starts with the war hero parents, both parents dying in war, and... And an almost fetishization of the military, followed by old-timey church revival, healing the sick, and then becoming a preacher. He's really trying to stereotype a particular kind of person here. Oh, and real quick, Reverend Mike did actually heal Ross. I mean, that's kind of glossed over really quickly in the story, but, you know, he did, in fact, make a man walk again, for reals. I mean, that's impressive. Mike's the real deal. Um, you know, just saying. And when Ross, as Fool Killer, finds Mike in his compromising position, it's so funny. I mean, not, not, not the comedic thing that I just talked about, but it's just, it's just silly. He's sitting there with his lady, and they're gla- they have glasses of champagne raised over their heads, and just money strewn all about their laps and on the floor, and, you know... Reverend Mike just making it rain all over the place. Uh, you know, you know, just a typical night at home. <laughs> but for all the silliness going on here, there is a darker tone here, like I said. Um, and, and, and a very cynical one at that. It's quite clear how Gerber feels about religious fundamentalism. And when put up against the hippies, it's obvious where his sympathies lie. Ross Everbest, fool killer is meant to be seen as delusional, as self-righteous with a, with a persecution complex and violent homicidal tendencies. And are we to believe that this is the natural result of an overly hyper-moral belief system? I mean, is this Gerber expressing his fear over what he sees as the puritanical mindset? He seems to be saying that the more you think you are right and everyone else is wrong, the more dangerous it is for society. Of course, this is an extreme way of presenting the idea, and fully meant to be satire, um, a cautionary tale, if you will. I mean, it's all fun and games, but I can't help but think that it goes a little too far. And we've seen this before in Gerber's writing. Typically, his satire is whimsical, with a, a, you know, a biting sharpness to it. But at times it can border on being mean-spirited, almost cruel. I see him pushing it right to the edge in this story. 
you have to remember that at the time this was written, there was a lot of fear. People tended to wall themselves up, using their belief systems as a sort of armor. I think Gerber may have been caught up in that fear, or maybe using it to his own benefit, albeit in a ham-fisted way. Or, perhaps I'm reading too much into this. I mean, the guy is, uh, the guy is uh, a skin-tight Zorro with a ray gun, so maybe I should just take it for what it is. And the thing is, I really do like this story. I mean, overall, I, I think it's very entertaining and, and, uh, and, and a fun read. There's still some really create, and there are some great creative elements here, some very funny moments, and it's really trying to say something, even if that something misses a little bit in the execution. All right, I'm going to take another quick little break uh, and be back with some closing thoughts. Hey, Brian. What's up, Paul? Do you like comic books? I do. I love the funny books. Do you like listening to people talk about comic books? Why, yes, Paul. I find that both entertaining and informative. Well, that's great, because there's a new podcast where each episode a famous run or story arc is discussed in detail in a fun and totally not rambling way. It's called The Collected Edition. The Collected Edition? That sounds intriguing. Who are the hosts? Well, that's the best part. It's us, Paul Matthew Carr and Brian Reese. What? Fantastic! I love us. We're awesome. Where can folks find this amazing podcast, Paul? (laughs) Well, I'm glad you asked. The Collected Edition can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, as well as online at CollectedEditionPodcast.com. That's great. I'm going there right now. Me too. Are we done? Yeah, I think that'll do. All right, that's it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I do appreciate it. And thanks for sticking with me with my haphazard recording schedule. Uh, like I said, you know, I'll get it together someday, uh, hopefully very soon. Next time on the show, I will be straying a little bit from the main title and doing an issue of Marvel 2-in-1. That's right. Man-Thing and The Thing teaming up to do things. Marvel 2-in-1 is or was always a fun read. Well, I guess it is because it it's back now. And this one is a little wackier than usual. You know, basically it's just a punch em up, but it's it's always fun and a good time will be had for all. Uh, thanks again for listening. I would, as always, love to hear your feedback and uh, let me know if you agree with my take on things. And if you have anything to add, I really enjoy having this conversation about comics, about Man-Thing, and, and anything, really. Uh, so please, uh, leave leave comments, send me a message on Twitter... Uh, send me an email. Anything you want to do, I'm here. Carrier pigeon, uh, semaphore flags. You know, I'm good. Uh, so basically, until next time, uh, and hopefully that's very, very soon. Uh, take care, everybody. Keep reading comics. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man Thing podcast. The Nexus of All Realities is a Daddy Elf production. Man-Thing and all related titles are copyright Marvel Comics, and no infringement is intended. The show could be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you head on over and leave a review, I'd appreciate it, and I'll be your best friend. You can contact the show via email at nexus at daddyelk.com or online at nexusofallrealities.com and leave a comment on individual episodes. You can also connect with the show on Twitter, at NexusofAll. The Nexus of All Realities is for entertainment purposes only. 
I'm Peter Fool!